0: Sometimes you meet someone who is so inspiring and so encouraging that they almost immediately feel like a friend. Bob Goff is an author. He's a lawyer. He's a nonprofit pioneer. And he's also the honorary counsel to the country of Uganda. And some years ago, he wrote a book called Love Does. And he started an organization with the same name that has been fighting for human rights and providing education uh, to children in conflict zones around the globe. They've helped children who've been wrongly convicted uh, of, of crimes escape prison. Uh, they operate schools and safe houses, and they've helped many children escape human trafficking. One of the scariest evils that Love Does has engaged is the practice of child sacrifice by witch doctors. Almost a thousand year uh, uh, children are abducted in Uganda alone. And the belief among witch doctors is. The head, the blood, or the private parts of children have some magical powers. Now, witch doctors are very powerful. The police uh, are afraid of them. Uh, Judges won't try cases uh, over them because of their their power and their fear. But Bob Goff, through a divine appointment uh, some years ago, actually became friends with the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the country of Uganda. And in that meeting, they talked about this whole issue, and he got the Supreme Court to agree that if they ever had a victim who actually survived an attack and a perpetrator, uh, that, they would, um, that they would prosecute, and, and they would prosecute and pursue the death penalty. Now, not long after that, an 8-year-old boy named Charlie was abducted by one of the leaders of the witch doctors. His name was Cobby. Now, Charlie actually survived the attack, and for the first time, they had a survivor and a perpetrator in custody. And through the amazing courage of the Chief Justice and incredible testimony of Charlie, Uganda had a breakthrough with their first conviction. Justice was to be served, and Kabi was to be uh, sentenced to the death penalty. But among the celebration, something began to happen inside of Bob Goff's heart, and he began to wonder about Kabi. See, Cobby was no doubt Bob Goff's enemy, but he decided to go visit him in prison. Cobby entered the the meeting room with no shoes and uh, dark clothes. And as soon as he saw Bob, he fell to one knee, and he began to just tell him how sorry he was for what he'd done to Charlie. He talked about the pain of growing up in the culture of witchcraft. And he said something then that stunned Bob. He said, I know I'm going to die in here, but what I really need right now, what I really need is forgiveness. Bob's immediate reaction inside was absolutely not for a child abuser, for a, a, a murderer. According to Bob Goff, Cobby then said something that would forever shape his understanding of grace and forgiveness. Cobby said that he wanted to put his faith and his life in the strong arms of Jesus, Bob Goff says that he had a decision to make at that moment. He could either just agree with Jesus or he could follow Jesus by loving his enemy into the kingdom of God. And there in that dark prison, Bob Goff led one of the most notorious witch doctors in Uganda to Jesus. See, we live in a time when It seems like opposition to the gospel and the kingdom of God is multiplying in our culture. And I don't think any of us are shocked by that. But what do you do when the opposition you're facing and the hatred hits close to home? What do you do when it becomes personal? Jesus actually prepared us for these days. In John 15, 20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me... They will also persecute you. Luke 21:17 says, "You will be hated by all for my namesake." We've been given clear instructions on how to live in these last days. Later in the New Testament, Romans 12:21 says, "Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good." See, these instructions are simple, but they're not easy. The big idea for my message today is Christian love responds in the opposite spirit. Christian love responds in the opposite spirit. And there are two main things that I want you to take away from this message today. First is that you would understand God's love and mercy for you in a new and fresh way. And second, from that understanding, it will provoke you to further express God's love to a lost and dying world by loving your enemies. My text today is out of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6. And in our passage today, Jesus is taking us further into what Christian love looks like. In my last message, I talked about the importance of obedience to God's Word, specifically the great commandment to love our neighbor as ourself. But Jesus is always after more of our hearts. He's always raising the bar of what it means to follow Him. Before we go to our text today, let's review a little bit of Luke here and understand some of the context. Luke 6 picks up fairly early in Jesus's ministry. He's already begun preaching and healing around Galilee. After calling his 12 disciples, he comes down from the mountain where he delivers one of his most famous discourses known as the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus then shares the Beatitudes and his vision of how his followers are supposed to live and express his love in a fallen and broken world. And he closes the beatitudes with this important exhortation, Luke 6:22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the son of man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus says here that four things are going to happen because of our relationship with him. First, we're going to be hated. Next, we're going to be excluded. We're going to be deplatformed. We will be verbally abused. And last, our very name will be considered as evil. And for all that, Jesus says we are blessed. Now, the immediate context here is the opposition for allegiance to Jesus. Jesus had already begun to make enemies of the Pharisees because of his healing and because of his preaching. But I do think there's a broader application here for all of Jesus's followers for all time. See, we have all of us. People in our lives who have wronged us, they have hurt us, they actually hate us. And in fact, nothing would please them more to see you suffer and to fail. And today's message is going to be very practical because it's going to help us deal with the mess of personal conflict. But even more important than that, it's going to help us deal with the mess inside of our own hearts. With that background in mind and that context, let's go to our text today. Luke six twenty-seven. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful." From this text, I'm going to look at the characteristics of Christian love that responds in the opposite spirit. First, Christian love is costly. Luke six twenty seven. here Jesus begins with a call to those Who hear, and the understanding of the word hear is not just the ability to process and recognize sound waves. Jesus is talking about hearing with the intent to respond in obedience. I pray that we are hearers today as we hear this text. The literary structure here is in the form of four exhortations followed by four illustrations. First, Jesus says we're to love our enemies, and this is a general sense, but it's a clear call. But it's important to clarify what Jesus means uh, and the type of love that he's calling for. In English, we just have one word uh, for love. So you could say, I I love my mom. I love pizza. I love college basketball. And if you say that all in the same sentence, your mom might kind of feel sad because you're equating your love with her for college basketball. I mean, we just have one word. It, It doesn't do justice to the range of emotions, but there were several words for love in Greek. There's the, uh, love, natural affection. There's uh, romantic love. There's the love between friends. But the love that we're to have towards our enemies that Jesus is talking about is agape love. And agape love is, is unconditional. There's no strings attached. There's no expectation of a payback. It's the kind of love that God expresses towards us. And in this context, it's the type of love that is demonstrated in actions. This love is self sacrificing. It's others' focus and sacrificial. And Jesus gives three examples on how we're supposed to love our enemies. And I want you to notice how each of these increase in difficulty. Do good to those who hate you, verse 27. He says that we're to take specific actions and do, do, do good deeds for people who actually hate us. Now, practically, this could be uh, doing a good deed for someone in your office that you know that they despise you. Or we, we all have that one neighbor who, no matter how friendly you try to be, he just can't stand you. Maybe you could offer to get his mail for him when he's out of town. But it's practical good works to people who hate us. Next, Jesus says we're to bless those who curse you, verse 28. And one of the most powerful forces in life is the power of words. Proverbs eighteen twenty-one says that, that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And one of the most painful things that you can experience is when someone uses words to speak evil about you or to demean you. Sometimes it's the private things that someone has said, tearing you down or slandering you behind your back that get back to you. We've all had that happen and it hurts. But like Pastor Carroll said last week, we need to make a quality decision based uh, on his love and empowered by his grace to actually speak well of others when they're speaking ill of us. Next, Jesus says that we're to pray for those who abuse or mistreat you, verse 28. As followers of Jesus, we believe in the the intimacy and the power of prayer. And because we believe in the power of prayer, this is one of the hardest things to do for someone who's your enemy because you're now moving into one of the most loving things that you can do for anyone. And that's hard because our natural impulse is to want to withhold the best from the people who've hurt us when I was 12 years old, I uh, was in middle school, uh, one of the most popular places to go on the weekends was Champs Skating Rink over in the Linden area. And hundreds of kids would come out and it was always a great time. And I've got some incredible, great memories from from that time. But as I prepared for the message this week, a, a not so great memory came to, uh, came to my mind. See, I just lived just a few blocks from Champs at the time. And uh, one night, it was a Friday night around this time of year. I decided to walk home. It was about eleven o'clock. It's about a ten-minute walk, and uh, as I got to about a half a block away from my house, I heard a loud engine uh, rolling up the street, and I just had a, a creepy feeling about it. And it began to slow down as it pulled aside, pulled beside me, and I, I, I hid behind a bush hoping hoping to, that they wouldn't see me. And then, uh, and then as they parked there. With the engine revving, I tried to sneak by, hoping they wouldn't see me. And then two guys, probably about 18 or 19, they jumped out and they said, get him! They tackled me. One of them punched me in the stomach. As I was doubled over, one of the other guys gave me a knee to the face. And they're holding me there, and I was scared. See, I didn't know if they were going to try to put me in their car or what. And he's screaming at me, give me your money! As calmly as I could. I said, there's dollar fifty in my pocket, just take it. So they took the money and they ran off. I, I'd never really thought about the details uh, of that event until this week. You know, things sometimes just, just happen to you and you just kind of bury them. But as I began to process that incident, this passage in Luke gave me a framework to actually understand that I was assaulted and robbed. And when something like that happens to you, there's a there, There's an actual violation of your your personhood, your sense of dignity and worth as an image bearer of god i've never forgotten their faces mm-hmm. and this week, as I went through this text and as i prepared god God supernaturally he, he helped me to forgive them and, and not only did he help me forgive them, but I began to pray for these men uh that that God would bless them, that he would bless their relationships, that he would bless their health, and their work. And and then I prayed that they would know the love of God and experience a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now listen, I'm going to be real and transparent with you. Getting to that place is not and was not easy. Loving your enemies and praying for those who, who mistreat you, it's not something you can do on your own strength. It's a work of grace. It's supernatural. But please hear me. Loving your enemies in no way minimizes the evil that you've experienced. I feel maybe there's some here today who've had a, a similar experience of being mistreated, and you need to know that you're not, a, you're not alone. Uh, and not only do we, we take it seriously, but God takes it seriously too. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to lay down our rights and our desire for revenge, trusting that our God also is a God of justice and He does not turn a blind eye to evil. And not only can God heal your pain, but He can help you forgive and He can eventually help you get to the place where you actually pray for those who hurt you. Jesus then gives four illustrations that will send, sound a little bit odd to modern ears, and it's important when we're interpreting Scripture to try to understand it as the original audience would. Verse 29 says, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. The image here is uh, of a public setting, right? And when there's an argument, there's a a, a backhanded slap across the face. It was an insult meant to demean someone in public. And the point that Jesus is making here is not only are we to accept wrongdoing without seeking revenge, we're actually called to turn again and to offer help, even if it means the possibility of being taken advantage of. Next he says, when they... Take your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. so the context here is uh, in those days, uh, traveling on the road it was it was very very common to to experience criminals who were lurking on the highway and, and robbery and the cloak is is the outer gar- garment right it 's almost like wearing a, a coat today, and the tunic is 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 the inner garment the the protective uh, underwear and it 's a gar- it 's a picture of making yourself continually vulnerable now, if the example of of getting slapped across the face or or getting robbed as we travel on the highway doesn 't connect with you, the next one will verse thirty Jesus commands us to give to everyone who begs from you in both jewish and greco roman culture there was a very very common for Quid pro quo, which is I'll give and you give. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And so, giving at the time was a very uh, important means for uh, for people in their eyes to gain power and prestige and status over over other people. So, the more that you gave, the more that people were beholden to you. For honest today, money is still used as a way to exercise power. But Jesus is continually pursuing our freedom. And one of the areas of our lives that we are most in bondage to is money. It's either the desire for more or fear of not having enough. Jesus said that we cannot serve both God and money, that we will hate one and love the other. By commanding his followers to give to people who had absolutely no way of paying them back with favors in the future, Jesus is making a radical demand on his followers. And the point he's making is that we should be prepared to meet these needs without prejudice of any kind. So let me ask you a question, a little thought experiment. What thoughts or, or emotions do you have when someone asks you for money? And I'm not talking about the, the obvious scams at intersections. We need to use discernment and wisdom. I'm talking about people who you know. You know they really are down and out. Do you begin to think that they're probably in their state because of sin or bad choices? Maybe they're reaping what they've sown. In other words, do you think that they deserve it? Or, Or maybe you don't want to be taken advantage of because you know they're just going to spend it on drugs and alcohol. Listen, I know those thoughts have crossed my mind. So, if you're like me, then this verse is for us. Jesus says in verse 30, to give to everyone who begs from you. Now, the point of these illustrations is not to offer an exact blueprint on how you're supposed to act every time you find yourself in one of these scenarios. Rather, I think what Jesus here is is that we need to always be prepared to respond in this way. In other words, Jesus is most concerned about the position and the posture of our hearts. Jesus is using hyperbole here to get the attention and shock his, his listeners both then and now. Jesus then summarizes the previous examples here in verse 31, known throughout history as the golden rule. Verse 31, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now the I did some research, and there are multiple sayings from ancient times that re- express a, a similar related ethic, but they're actually very different when you look at them pretty closely. Uh, here are a couple examples. What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. This is from Confucius. Next is, I will not myself do that which I account blameworthy in my neighbor. That's the philosopher Herodotus. But almost all the other statements are phrased in the negative context. But Jesus here emphatically inverts the focus. Don't just refrain from the things you don't want done to you, right? Instead, proactively switch it and treat your enemies in a way, right? In the way that you want to be treated, in the, in the way that, that your preference matters. Treat them the same way. Now, the first approach is a is a minimal approach and has a more inward focus, while Jesus' approach is more expansive and generous. And when suffering comes, the difference between the two becomes apparent. One of the most powerful examples of loving your enemy and expressing the golden rule happened in the fall of 2006. Charles Roberts was a milk tanker driver who served several Amish farmers and families in the Lancaster County, Pennsylvania area. Roberts was a, a 32-year-old husband. He was the father of three young children, but for years he would battled depression because of the tragic sudden death of his newborn daughter. And over time, his behavior became more and more strange. He began to withdraw from family and church life, and he became more of a loner. On October 2nd, He walked into a one-room Amish schoolhouse on a clear, warm Monday morning. He ordered the boys and the adults to leave, and he tied up 10 little girls between the ages of 6 and 13 and shot them, killing five and injuring the others before taking his own life. And one of the survivors said that he told them, I'm angry at God, and I need to punish some Christian girls to get even with him. I'm going to make you pay for my daughter. Now, this horrific tragedy is made all the more sad because of the context of the Amish culture of peace and nonviolence. Now, the response of the Amish families, including families who had lost loved ones, was a miraculous display of Christians loving their enemies. In in hours after the massacre, as the Amish parents waited in a nearby barn for word on what had happened to their daughters, an Amish man named Henry arrived at the home of Charles Robertson's parents with a message. And the message was simple. The families did not see the couple as an enemy. Rather, they saw them as parents who were grieving the loss of their child too. Henry put his hand on the shoulder of Charles Roberts' father and called him a friend. And this is a quote from Marie, Charles Roberts' wife at the time. There were several families that said to me, You know, at the end of the day, we have our spouse. We have each other to lie in each other's arms and cry, but you don't have anyone. And we think about you when you go to bed at night and you're all alone. Witnesses from the funeral report that Amish families who had buried their own daughters just the day before were in attendance and they hugged the widow and hugged the other members of the killer's family. And even a year later, the Amish community had donated money to the killer's widow and her three young children. How is that kind of response possible? There's only one answer. It's a heart that has been radically transformed and gripped by God's agape love. And yes, it's a heart that feels pain and terrible grief, in the face of unspeakable evil, but it's a heart that does not seek revenge, and it's a heart that loves one's enemy. Christian love responds in the opposite spirit. Christian love is costly. Next, Christian love goes above and beyond. Luke six thirty two. if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Here Jesus is making some parallel connections to love in action from the previous section. Only here he's taking a a different approach and he's using negative contrasting examples to make his point. And to make the contrast even more uncomfortable, Jesus uses the term sinner to challenge and provoke his followers to a higher level of love. But notice in these verses that Jesus doesn't say that sinners are incapable of love and good works. Greg Epstein serves as the humanist chapel for uh, MIT and Harvard, and he's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Good Without God, What a Billion Non-Religious People Do Believe. Now, in 2009, the book was released to much fanfare. In fact, to help promote the launch of the book, a billboard campaign was coordinated across the nation that said things like, are you good without God? Millions are. And don't believe in God? You're not alone. So I was curious. I did a little bit of research. And this is from the Humanist Hub website. Quote, humanism is a progressive life stance that without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment, aspiring to humanity's greater good. It is, in short, good without God. And as I thought about it, it begs the question, how well are we demonstrating the love of Jesus? Historians have noted over the years, how the ethic of generosity and compassion towards their enemies was a, was a major factor in the growth of the early church. Uh, in an editorial by Peter Berger, he tells of the story in 252 AD, there was a devastating plague that hit the city of Carthage. Um, uh, healthy people fled. They, le- they led the, left the city, leaving everything behind. But Cyprian, the bishop, he drew all the Christians to the center of the town square uh, where they had been persecuted in this city. And this is what he told the believers there. He said, if we're going to do what Jesus said so that through his poverty we might become rich, I call you to give personal and financial aid, care and comfort to all according to their need, not their faith. See, this countercultural attitude toward money and compassion was a huge, huge part of the early church. In fact, about 100 years later, the Roman Emperor Julian, who who had tried to revive the pagan religion, he eventually admitted defeat in a letter to a friend. This is what he wrote. Whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. These impious Galileans not only feed our own poor, but ours also, welcoming them into their agape. Is it possible that as we prepare for the challenges of the last day's church, maybe we can apply the example of the early church? In 1973, there was a a famous Princeton study that examined the behavior of their theological seminary students, and it tested whether uh, thinking religious thoughts would have any impact on helping those in need. So the seminary students... In this uh, study, we're asked to prepare a three- to five-minute talk about what it means to be a minister. And half of the students in the talk were just told to just share share your thoughts on what you think being a pastor or a ministry is going to be like. And the other half of the students were actually given the story of the Good Samaritan, which they were supposed to incorporate into their talk. So after preparing their talks, they were called to another part of the campus. But along the way, the researchers had staged an emergency And in this emergency, uh, in in the doorwell of the building that they were going to, uh, there was an actor who was sitting slumped. His head was down, his eyes were closed, uh, and he was coughing when they were walked by. Basically, the guy was in terrible shape. And it turns out that even if the students were actively thinking about uh, being being helpful and religious virtue, the tests and the results showed that it didn't matter at all. In fact, the researchers noted on several occasions, a seminary student going to give us talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the victim as he hurried on his way. Sometimes we can be so focused on getting from here to there that we miss the opportunities that God puts in our path every day. Well, let's make it personal. Is there someone in your life who needs help that you're stepping over? Is there maybe someone in your life who's gossiped about you that you can speak well of? Maybe God is showing you opportunities to love people who you would consider an enemy because Christian love responds in the opposite spirit. And one of the challenges that that I face personally is when I see friends of mine who are not believers out loving me. And look, it happens. And it's not that they're just more generous with their time or their money. It's a generosity of spirit and affection. And one of the most challenging things about it is they don't seem to have categories for their kindness. I fear that as Christians we've lost our voice in the world because we've become a people who are known more for what we're against than what we're for. The type of love that Jesus is calling for to love our enemies is costly. It's self-sacrificing. Love, it's the way of the cross. And I think that's what Jesus is after here in verses 32 and 34. He wants us to examine ourselves and see if we're walking in Christian love that goes further than what unbelievers are doing. And if we're only showing love and doing good to others at the lowest common denominator, then we're missing the point. Love and good works that match the level of unbelievers won't stand out. It will just blend in. Christian love is costly. Christian love goes above and beyond. And last, Christian love reflects the Father. Luke six thirty five. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons or daughters of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Jesus echoes the Beatitudes here by noting that if we're walking in Christian love toward our enemies, then we have a, a big reward waiting for us in heaven. But here in this passage, I think it's important to draw out a clear picture of the gospel and how our motivation to and how our motivation drives us to love our enemies. Several years ago I was at a conference. And one of the main speakers had a great analogy that helped me understand how to get my motivation for good works in the proper order. And he used the analogy of a tree. And in this example, the root of the tree is the gospel, right? It's the fact that we don't save ourselves. It's not what we do. It's about what Jesus has already done. He then went on to say that our, our good works are the fruit of the tree. The fruits are the things that we do out of a loving relationship with and love for God the Father. Ephesians 2, 8-10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, we don't love our enemies so we can become sons and daughters of the Most High. See, we love our enemies because we're sons and daughters of the Most High. So when Jesus says in verse 35, you will be sons or daughters of the Most High, he's saying that we will be demonstrating our family ties to Father God. Every now and then, uh, my mom will remark to me about how I have some of my father's traits, and we were out recently uh, for lunch and doing some shopping, and she, she mentioned that I walk like my dad. She said that I, I walk on my toes uh, with a bounce. You know, you can't really see how you walk, so I don't know really uh, what that means, but here's what I'll say about that. When, when someone says something like that, it does something on the inside of you, See, it makes you feel good when you hear someone say you reflect your father. You have the same mannerisms. And I think we all try to love and emulate the things we, 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 we just adore about our parents. Jesus is saying that as we are kind to the ungrateful, as we show mercy to the evil, we are reflecting and revealing the love of God to a lost and dying world. One last story and I'll close. After the trial of Kabi, Bob Goff began to meet with other witch doctors across Uganda. And he's met with over a thousand of them. And in the process, he he does put a healthy fear into them. He says if they ever take part again in child abduction or child sacrifice, uh, that, that they'll face the death penalty. According to Bob, love speaks truth to power. But after he scares the wits out of the witch doctors, he gets on his knees and he washes their feet. One trip before he left, Bob asked the new leader of the witch doctors what they needed, and he was surprised by the answer. The witch doctor said, people think that we have power, so they want us around, but they don't really like us, so we're very isolated, and most of us don't know how to read or write. Bob Goff goes on to say that loving your enemies doesn't just mean learning about them or being nice to them or tolerating them. It means helping them. So he started a witch doctor school that teaches them how to read and write, and they have hundreds of students, and they've graduated hundreds more. And get this, the only books that they use as textbooks are the Bible and his book, Love Does. (laughs) The graduation ceremonies are festive, and as Bob hands them their diplomas, He looks them in the eye and tells them who they are becoming and how far they've come as leaders in their villages and communities. See, Christian love that responds in the opposite spirit has the power to transform not just individuals but entire cultures when we love our enemies. Not long ago, Bob Goff got a call at midnight from two of the witch doctors from the school. They said, a little boy has been abducted by a new witch doctor in town, and he's preparing for a child sacrifice. But we know where he is. Then they ask, should we go get the child? Bob, now fully awake, he's standing on his bed, he screams, get the kid! Four hours later, he received a short message, text message, from two witch doctors who had done unthinkable wrongs, but had experienced the power of love And acceptance. The text message said, We rescued the child. He's with his mother. And a moment later he received a text that simply read, Love does. See, when you've been gripped by that kind of radical love and mercy from the God of the universe, from your heavenly father, it will transform you. That's the beauty and the power of Christian love. And that's our story. We used to do unthinkable wrongs, not just to other people made in his image, but against a holy God. We were enemies of God. Romans 5.10 says, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Not only were we enemies of God, we were helpless. Jesus did what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins so that we might live forever with him. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, christ died for us and jesus responds in the opposite spirit until the bitter end on the cross he cries out father forgive them they don't know what they're doing if you've never experienced the forgiving love of jesus you don't have to wait you've been an enemy of god you now have, an, now have an invitation to eternal life and today is your day because christian love responds in the opposite spirit